Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's a wonderful day today. The weather's beautiful, and it is a great day to worship God together, to sit under his word. It's a huge honor for me to be preaching. Like Matt said, it is a very tall task, but I'm very grateful uh, that the Holy Spirit is present and prepared to preach the better sermon this morning. And so I agree with Matt's prayer. May he do so, and may he teach us and feed us through his word. Today we come to Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Uh, which is an interesting passage, to say the least. It's not one of those passages that many people have memorized. Uh, it's a passage about judgment, Jesus lamenting the imminent fate of Jerusalem. I want to begin this way. I was a high school teacher for a couple of years, uh, and I love teaching. Anyone who has ever been a teacher knows that the hardest thing about teaching is not lesson planning, it's classroom management. Um, in an ideal world, kids would just sit and listen to the liquid gold that is coming out of your mouth as a teacher and receive it, internalize it, and regurgitate it on some form of assessment. In the real world, however, that's not exactly what happens. The question is, for a teacher, how do you respond when kids oppose your teaching, um, whether passively or actively? Uh, on the one hand, there's the way of compassion. As a teacher, you realize you're teaching kids, and kids will be kids. They're learning to test the boundaries of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Um, and so you can engage with compassion. Probably some of the worst offenders in your classroom are going through something really difficult outside of the classroom, and so there may be a time for extra grace to be given. So that's one option, compassion. On the other hand, there's indifference. These kids are just knuckleheads. They're just going to keep teaching, and if they get it, they'll get it. If they don't, they won't. If those who aren't getting it right now want to jump on board in the future, that's great, but they probably won't, so we're just going to keep on going. Most of you have probably never been teachers, but the phenomenon of teaching amidst opposition is pretty universal. Brian Regan is my favorite stand-up comedian. He tells a joke about the airport when you're waiting to board a plane. Uh, and for some reason, when the gate attendant says, everyone remain calm and please stay seated until your boarding group is called, Everyone takes that and rushes the gate and goes straight to the gate, totally disregarding those instructions. So Brian Regan makes a joke about it, but think about your life. Where are you typically met with opposition? It's a pretty universal human experience. As a coworker, it may be when you find out that it's difficult to collaborate with people who have different ideas than you do. As a manager or as a boss, you might have thought for a long time, man, I can't wait till I'm in management. And then you start managing people and you realize, Managing people is managing people um, who seem to probably have different ideas or different ways of doing things. If you're a parent, no further explanation needed. So how do you respond when you're met with opposition? We come to a passage today in which Jesus is met with opposition. And in his response, both how and why he responds as he does, we're given a picture of the heart of God. A vision as the church for what our approach ought to be in the midst of a world which opposes the plan of God. If you haven't yet, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 13 so you can follow along as I'm preaching to take a moment to locate us within the larger story because we've just jumped a bit forward in this series to Luke chapter 13. Uh, there's a significant turning point that we just jumped past in the gospel. It comes in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus transitions from his general ministry in the region 
to a very targeted ministry. He turns his face in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We're told, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's probably the turning point in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus was doing his general ministry, and then he starts his final journey to, toward Jerusalem, where he would ultimately give his life. So from that turning point, we're past that. So Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, and coming here at the end of chapter 13, Jesus' ministry by this point has grown significantly in its scope and influence. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples two by two into towns to do miracles and proclaim his name. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 disciples, again, two by two, into the various towns that he's going to visit to prepare the way for him. And so his influence, so word about him had been very publicly proclaimed, and a lot of people, there's a lot of excitement and anticipation about Jesus' ministry. As a result, he is exclusively preaching, almost exclusively preaching to large crowds made up of thousands of people who've come out to see this miracle work, to hear the words of this preacher who's preaching about the kingdom of God. And just before our passage for this morning, Jesus tells his followers to strive to enter through the narrow door in which Jesus talks about the urgency of taking up God's invitation to repent, to follow him. Because once the master, if he describes in that parable just before our passage, if you look up a little bit, he describes the kingdom of God as a banquet that the master is preparing for his people. Once the master closes the door, there will be those caught outside who will have missed their chance. And so Jesus, the theme in chapter 13 that Jesus is teaching about is the urgency of the call to repent and to believe in him. Which brings us to our passage. It's at that very hour, when he's talking about this parable about coming to faith in him, that the Pharisees come to warn him that Herod wants to kill him. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's brought face to face with this growing opposition to his ministry and to what he has come to do. And so, we come to a passage in which he is lamenting this opposition. In the larger scope of the story of Jesus, like I said, this isn't a very well-known passage, perhaps, but in it we see something that is very close to the heart of God. And so as we consider this passage, I've got three points for us. First, we're going to look at the response to Jesus. Second, we're going to look at the response from Jesus. And third, we're going to look at our response in following Jesus. So to begin with, we're going to look at the response to Jesus. The first point is this. God's plan is always met with opposition. God's plan is always met with opposition. We see this in two ways in this passage. We see this from Herod, and we see this from Jerusalem herself. So first, let's look at Herod. The Pharisees, at the beginning of our passage, come to Jesus. And we don't know whether this is the Pharisees simply being kind to Jesus, or whether it's the Pharisees. We know by this time Jesus has also caused problems for the Pharisees, so they may have been trying to get Jesus out of the region. But they come to him. And they warn him, they warn Jesus, Herod is trying to kill you. If you know anything about the Herods, this is not a surprise. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' life, right after he was born, uh, Herod the Great, which is this Herod's father, sent out a decree that all of the sons, all of the boys, uh, two years and younger, were to be killed. It's known as the slaughter of the innocents. Um, and it's this terrible story uh, about Herod the Great trying to get rid of this newborn king who he's heard about, Jesus. So you fast forward to Herod, that Herod has died, and he left his territory to four tetrarchs, uh, three sons and his sister, 
who divided it into four areas. And Herod Antipas is this Herod, and he's the one who's governing the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus is most of his ministry. And uh, Herod was not pleased with this arrangement. He was initially the sole heir to his father, and then it was split four ways. And so he spent his whole life as this governor of this area, trying to build his influence, build his territory. He's very concerned about building his kingdom as a leader. Uh, by all accounts, he was reasonably effective at doing this. There were no rebellions during his career as Tetrarch. Uh, he was a very shrewd politician, but Jesus had been causing problems for him. Jesus, like I said, had been sending out these two-by-two two disciples to proclaim this coming new kingdom. The divine kingdom is here. And so Jesus uh, hears that Herod is trying to kill him. Uh, the Pharisees tell him. And we see how Jesus interprets this. He says, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. That's verse 32. So Jesus, upon hearing this, he doesn't shudder. And he certainly doesn't compliment Herod. He says, go and tell that fox. Now, a fox... At this time, it probably means something as similar as it does today. Think sly, crafty. Um, there's also an added connotation in the ancient world where foxes appear often in contrast with lions. Foxes are also insignificant, in other words. So, so Jesus says, go tell that fox. He's crafty. He's cunning. Um, uh, he was using others to try to scare Jesus out of his region. He didn't want Jesus there, but Herod didn't want to do anything about it himself. So he's a coward as well. So this, Jesus says, go tell this insignificant, crafty politician, I could care less. That's a basic translation of what Jesus is saying in response to hearing about Herod. Uh, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. In other words, I'm doing all that the Messiah has come to do. And the third day I finish my course. In other words, I will be successful. So this is a common saying, I'll do this today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll be finished. This is a common saying at this time. It's probably not a reference to the resurrection on the third day, although that's where a Christian's mind probably goes. This is just a common saying. It's a, it's a metaphor for completion. And so Jesus is saying, translation, Herod, my plan, you're not going to be able to interrupt what I've come to do. Though Herod is trying to kill Jesus, uh, Herod has no power to interrupt Jesus' ministry. He is not the true king. So the first source of opposition we see in our text is from Herod, the local ruler. Jesus is on a mission from God, and so Herod opposes him. The second source of opposition, let's look at how Jesus finishes his message to Herod. He says, tell that fox, I'm going to keep going until I'm done, and then in verse 33, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So when Jesus is told that Herod is trying to kill him, he doesn't say that he's not going to die. He simply says Herod's not the one who's going to do it. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes on and lament, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus acknowledges here that he is going to die. But he specifies that it's going to be in Jerusalem, which is not in Herod's territory. The second source of opposition Jesus receives in this passage is from Jerusalem itself. It's one thing for those outside the people of God to oppose God and his plans for the world. But the people of God themselves, if you're at all familiar with the story of the Bible, 
are often the worst offenders in this regard. Jerusalem is a city that serves as a symbol for the whole nation of Israel, and Jerusalem has a rich history of killing the prophets that God has sent to it. To give just a few examples, in the days of Elijah, Jezebel kills a bunch of prophets, and so Obadiah takes a hundred prophets and hides them in a cave. The prophet Zechariah was stoned in the courtyard of the temple uh, under Joash the king. King Jehoiakim, in the days of the prophet Jeremiah, sent men to chase down and kill Uriah, chop off his head. King Zedekiah gave Jeremiah over to be killed, even though Jeremiah's life was spared by another. King Hezekiah killed a bunch of prophets. The prophet Isaiah was sawn in two repeatedly. The pattern we see in the Bible is that Jerusalem, and these, are, these things all happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where prophets go to die. And Jerusalem is the place where God sends all those prophets. God has sent these prophets to bring about his purpose in the world for the sake of his people, and repeatedly they killed them. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, like I said, is headed to Jerusalem. And why? Of course, several times up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, already Jesus has prophesied about his coming death. He has told his followers, his disciples, that he's going to die. And we're told repeatedly that the disciples didn't understand his sayings when he says that. But here in the middle of this passage, he repeats it again. When he says it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem, Jesus is saying that he's headed to his death. And it's only fitting that this should happen in Jerusalem. Jesus has come in to usher in the kingdom of God. The reality for which God created humanity in the first place and the reality for which God's people have been waiting for their whole lives, for generations, for, for thousands of years. And he knows that rather than receiving him with open arms, they would treat him like those other prophets. Jesus was headed to his death. So this is the big idea that we see right off the bat. God's plan is always met with opposition. It's a theme uh, that we see throughout Scripture. On the one hand, we see it in violent opposition, like I just mentioned, killing the prophets. But we also see stories that run through the Bible that even in the patriarchs, even though those whom God appoints to use for his purposes, there's opposition to God. Adam and Eve, of course, they blow it in the garden. Abraham doubts God, tries to find a way around God's plan. King David and King Solomon give themselves over to desire for foreign women and, and move away from God's plan. It's a opposition against God is in the name of Israel itself. If you're familiar with the story, Jacob, who becomes renamed Israel, gets renamed after, after he literally wrestles with the angel of God. And so he's renamed Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. Israel's name, they are a nation that wrestles with God, that is opposed, in other words, to the plan of God. The pattern in the Bible is that God is always met with opposition. We see it on a, ma- on a micro scale in the lives of individual people. We see it on a macro scale. Going back to the garden, there's two opposing forces who are constantly battling the seed of the woman, the seed of promise, and the seed of the enemy, the serpent, the seed of Satan, those who are children of wrath. And God's plan throughout the whole Bible has shown that his plan is to redeem his children from under Satan into his kingdom. As Paul says it, the Apostle Paul, to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God's plan is always to redeem those who are children of wrath. And so it's unsurprising that we see fierce opposition in the world to the plan of God, and we see it here to the plan of Jesus. This is the biggest event in salvation history. The son of God has come to save the world. So of course the enemy wants to get rid of him. 
and he receives very clear opposition. That's the first thing we see in this passage. What is the response to Jesus? Opposition. God's plan is always met with opposition. Moving to the second point, what is the response from Jesus? How does Jesus respond when he is met with opposition? So first, we've already looked at this, just, we've already considered this a little bit. He responds very much like one of the Old Testament prophets. He speaks very strongly against Herod, and he speaks very strongly against Jerusalem. To Herod, he says, go tell that fox, look, I'm doing this thing, and you're not going to be able to do anything about this. You think that you have authority over me, but you don't. To Jerusalem, just as you've rejected the prophets, Jerusalem, you will reject me. On account of this, if you look at verse 35... Jesus says, your house is forsaken. When Jesus is met with opposition, when he knows that he's going to his death in Jerusalem, he speaks a serious word of indictment against Jerusalem. Your house is forsaken. God has given Israel, Jerusalem, as a symbol for the whole nation of Israel. God has given them chance after chance, and they've missed it. This is not a city of a bunch of people who have made mistakes, but who can do better. This is a city full of people who have wholesale rejected God and have chosen their sin instead. Jerusalem was supposed to be set apart for the service of the kingdom of God, but it has instead become the place where the prophets of the kingdom of God have been slaughtered. They've rejected God's purposes, and as Jesus makes his final approach to Jerusalem, he knows that it's not going to go well. So he says, behold, your house is forsaken. The time of abandonment has come. Rather than being gathered under God's wings in protection, the house of Jerusalem is left empty and exposed. The fruitless fig tree that Jesus has just talked about is being chopped down. So this is a very serious word of judgment. There are several places where Jesus prophesies prophesies the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in the year 70 AD. This is one of those places. It's also, therefore, it's a serious word of warning. Don't reject the one who is coming to you. Bow to him. Jesus' urgency is unmistakable. The parable that he's just told about the narrow way, that there's a point in time after which they will miss the opportunity to repent even if they want to. When Jesus goes on to say in the rest of verse 35, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's probably not talking about Palm Sunday, which was going to happen in another week. He's probably talking about his second coming, the ultimate, the, the day of judgment on his return. On this day, one commentator pointed out that those who will be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be saying it too late. If the last judgment comes and they haven't turned to Jesus, then they will have missed their chance. That's the point of the parable that he has just told. So there's urgency in Jesus' words. He's warning them, repent, come to me. It's not too late. But there's also something critical here that we can't miss. At the heart of this passage... We get a window into the heart of Jesus. Look at verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus' tone in in these words is particularly notable. It's not a nonchalant, okay, away with them, or off with their heads, as a a common earthly king would respond to someone who has committed treason. 
He doesn't simply say, away with them. Jesus' tone is one of lament. And it's a lament that points to his deepest desire, coming from the depths of the heart of God for his people. Jerusalem, city of my people, you have been looking everywhere for fulfillment, for security, for comfort, for safety. I have longed to give you the very thing you've been looking for. There's one other place when Jesus talks about Jerusalem specifically, in Luke chapter 19, when his journey finally brings him to the edge of Jerusalem and he's about to go in, and we're told that as he's preparing to enter, he weeps over Jerusalem. Luke 19 says this, he says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In this we see the heart of Jesus, even though Jerusalem is representative of a rebellious people. We see that Jesus' heart is not one of dismissal, but one of compassion. The image of the hen gathering her brood under her wings uh, is a common image in the Bible. A couple of examples in Deuteronomy chapter 32, speaking of the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness and grumbling against God who has just delivered them from slavery. Deuteronomy says this, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with them. Psalm 91, one of my favorite psalms, says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. It's an intimate picture of God caring for his people. One other example I read, one of the favorite articles, my favorite articles that I read over the course that I've read in seminary, is one theologian who looks at the Feast of the Passover and looks at the actual words and says, it's actually probably not the best thing to, to call that the Feast of Passover because it gives you the image that the Lord passes over the houses of the Israelites in the plague of the firstborn. If you know the story, it's when uh, God is delivering his people from Egypt, and he decides to send a tenth plague, which is to, to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But if you look at the actual words of the story, the Lord doesn't pass over the houses of the Israelites. It tells the story that the angel of death goes through the land and kills the firstborn indiscriminately in every house it goes to, except for those houses that are covered by the blood of the lamb. And the image there is, there's, AB, there's bird imagery of the Lord covering over the houses of Israel to protect them from the angel of death. For Jesus here, to use the image of God gathering his children under, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings is a revelation of God's heart for his people. His greatest desire is to intimately care for, nurture, and protect his people. And ultimately, as Jesus is saying these words against Jerusalem, we are witnessing God doing this very thing at the highest cost imaginable. We are witnessing God the Son, sent by God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as he makes the journey to Jerusalem and to his death, so that God might cover his people, protecting them from the coming judgment by the blood of the Lamb, his own Son. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus defines his mission in terms of his journey to Jerusalem. The tone of necessity is clear. He says, I must go on my way. It's here in our passage too, verse 33, I must go to Jerusalem. This plan will come to pass. Last week, God's preached on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted not to suffer. 
Satan said, if you just turn your face toward me, you don't have to suffer and I'll give you all the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation. Instead, he turns his face toward Jerusalem. It, it appears over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. His face was set toward Jerusalem. His face was set toward Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the Aaronic blessing, the benediction from Numbers chapter 6, right in the heart of the blessing of God, the Lord turned his face towards you. The Lord, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It would have been repeated over and over again by God's people through the generations as a reflection of the fact that God showed his favor to his people. And here, it's almost a play on those words. Jerusalem is mocking and rejecting Jesus, and what does he do? He blesses them. He turns his face towards them. He turns his face towards his enemies. He is the one who blesses rather than cursing his enemies. You know, the next time Jesus refers to being forsaken, here he says, Jerusalem, your house is forsaken. You know, the next time he says, talks about being forsaken, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very sentence he pronounced upon Jerusalem is the sentence that he was entering into Jerusalem to bear on their behalf. This is where the real Jesus shines from the pages of scripture with beauty and with glory in a way that really confuses us. See, we like to make things either or. There are those who look at Jesus' teaching on judgment, his rebukes of the Pharisees, the promises that he's going to come one day on a horse in order to just slay all of his enemies and bring judgment. And then there's those who, who prefer to look at Jesus in his meekness and gentleness and patience, looking at how he draws near to the sinner with kindness. But here we see the key that holds those two things together in perfect balance. Jesus is the one who brings both grace and truth. And what is the key that holds them together? His compassion. When Jesus draws near to the sinner, we see his compassion. When he's speaking clearly against the rulers and the Pharisees, we see his compassion. When he speaks a word of judgment in this lament, we see the heart of his compassion. And when he's hanging there on the cross, we see his compassion. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus responds to the opposition he is facing with both truth and grace, which is true compassion. You see, if I had responded to my high school students with pure grace and no truth, then I would have just said, you know what? I don't need to come down on them. I'm just going to let them keep doing their thing. No word of correction, no word of truth. I'm just going to let them. It's, their life is already hard enough, apparently, so I'm just going to let them keep on keeping on. That's not love. That's avoidance. If, however, I had responded to them with all truth and no grace, and just dropped the hammer and left it to them to deal with, then that wouldn't have been loving either. That would have been harsh. But as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, love both rejoices in the truth and bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, bears and endures all things. In our passage, we see that Jesus demonstrates for us the love of God which brings these things together perfectly. In his lament, we see both correction and invitation. The truth is that they have rejected God. As a result, they have suffered and they will continue to suffer. And Jesus is saddened deeply by this. But he doesn't turn and abandon them on account of this. He has come to truly bear all things. To endure all things for their sake in love for them. 
He follows the path that is set before him to his death so that through his death, he might secure their salvation and lead them out of death to life. In his death at their hands, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His arms are wide open and welcome. Father, on account of this, welcome them. When Jesus is met with opposition, he doesn't turn away. He comes in, and he winds up using that very rebellion for his purposes. It is through their rebellion that his life is taken, paying the highest price through what looked like a humiliating defeat. That's exactly the means through which God secured the ultimate victory. That's the second point. The first point, we looked at the response to Jesus. We see that God's plan is always met with opposition. The second, when we look at the response of Jesus, we see that God responds with compassion. And third, what is our response in following Jesus? Taking Jesus as our model, we too are sent into the world to demonstrate this compassion. Here's the thing. When we follow this story all the way to the end, when we read to the rest of the Bible, and we consider the death and resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the foundation of the church, we realize something critical. We see that the very people who would bring the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus to a world in need were the very people who opposed him to the end. Consider the Apostle Paul. He was vicious, he was violently opposed to the people of God. He oversaw the killing of Christians. By the mercy of God, he became one of the foundation stones upon which the church was built, whose words continue to lead and guide us into the mercy and grace of God even today. I want you to think right now about the person who makes you most angry. If you're not a person who likes saying that you're angry, the person who you don't like the most, or the person who makes you most uncomfortable. Is it the corrupt politician? Is it the Ponzi scheme perpetrator? Is it the gender transitioning advocate who's providing medical procedures in secret without telling parents? Is it the abuser? Think about the person who you might think, of all of the people who God has come to save, that person is probably beyond the pale. You think, I'm going to give this illustration tentatively, I think it's helpful. Remember when the Black Lives Matter movement was taking off? And then there, was, there were people who were very distressed about the injustice faced by black men in particular, who wanted to make sure that we understood as a society that Black Lives Matter. And then there was a response that I think perhaps missed the point that said blue lives matter. And then there was an perhaps equally unhelpful response, all lives matter. In the middle of the din, it was very controversial. I don't want to take a stance either way, but it was, a, it was a lot of people talking about one person and another. There was one person on Twitter who, who sent a tweet that went viral. It said, this lives matter, these lives matter, these lives matter. At least we all agree that pedophiles' lives don't matter. And it's interesting to think about that. I remember it very strongly. Um, because, of course, it, 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 strikes a, it strikes a chord in a number of ways, but it struck a particular chord with me. Because I don't think it's a very Christian response. It kind of misses the point 
of the grace of Jesus. It is absolutely awful what some people in this world do. But to take pedophiles as an example, it loses the fact that 80% of pedophiles were abused as children. Misses a whole lot of the story that each person who could be characterized with this or that label may be rebelling against God, may be hurting other people. But that is precisely the kind of person that God came for. Jesus came to bring mercy and grace to the worst of offenders. To testify to his glory and goodness out of love for those who fail. There are several places in the Bible where we're given different lists of sinners. For one example, 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul gives this list. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The question is, why is Paul including that list? Is he listing off the people who should be kept outside the gate? No. He goes on to say the opposite. He says, and such were some of you. Jesus came for you. You were outside the kingdom of God, and that's where all you were. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is far too easy, Sojourn, for us to see ourselves as Christians, as above or as apart from the world. It's at least part true. It's part of why we believe it. Because we are, as Christians, we're a holy nation. We're set apart for the purposes of God. But it misses the fact that we are called to be with people. We see this throughout the Old Testament. One example, the prophet Ezekiel, when he was given a vision of God in all of his glory and the uncleanness of his people, what he did was he went straight to the people and wept with the people of God. The Apostle Paul spent his life in ministry repeatedly going to those who abused him, who beat him, who mocked him for the sake of the love that he had for those people. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself came to dwell among us to demonstrate what love truly looks like. And why? Because we are those people. When we look at our passage, we must see that Jesus, when he laments over Jerusalem, he is lamenting about us. He's not lamenting about them who are getting it wrong, who are missing it. He's lamenting about all of humanity who is opposed to the plan of God. Even his chosen people, the ones who were supposed to receive and administer the grace of God, opposed him. We are the ones who God has desired to gather together and who were not willing. The reason we are here enjoying the mercy and grace of God is not because we were willing, but because he chose us. He redeemed us. He gave us new hearts and set us in these seats. Why do we confess sins every week? Why do we observe an annual season of fasting and repentance and prayer with a focus on lament? It's because our sin needs the continual mercy and grace of God. We are the cause of Jesus' lament in this passage. But it was for the joy that was set before him of having his children back that he continued on his way to Jerusalem so that we could be saved. Because of this, we don't build a separate, parallel society, staying away from the bad people so that we don't get stained by their sin. We enfold ourselves into the lives of all those around us. We remain distinct, but present in tangible ways in the lives of the people around us. We have been made new, according to the Bible. And why has God made us new? 
to turn and spread the new creation that we've been made into, the good news of Jesus, to go and spread that with the world around which so desperately needs it. I've heard many stories of people who have been rescued from doing very awful things and who God has used, whose stories God has used to change the lives of thousands. You never know when you're talking to somebody who's opposed to God. You never know when you're talking to the next Apostle Paul. Because that's how God works. And he doesn't do that through people who remain distinct and afraid of the world. He does it through people who move in, who demonstrate compassion for the world around. So, Jordan, it's been a hard road for us in some ways, for some time. My prayer for us as a church during the season of Lent is that the Lord would use his divine plunger to clear our clogged pipes so that the living water of God can saturate us and nourish our souls, can, can, can nourish our hope and our confidence in the Lord, lift our eyes to the world around and remind us of why we're here in the heights, why God placed you in your house, in your apartment, with the people he's placed you with, around the people he's placed you with, to invite our wandering neighbors into the fold of the family of God, to build relationships, to love widely. The church has always been met with opposition. We will continue to be met with opposition, but what if we were a people marked with the long-suffering, patient compassion of Jesus in the face of our opposition? What if we were a people captivated by both grace and truth, who neither judged nor avoided, but who were captivated by the love of God for us and motivated by that love to go into the world, into our neighborhoods, workplaces, families, and marriages, who despite frequent and even sometimes dangerous opposition, respond with compassion and grace. You want to know how to participate in the way of the world? Engage without compassion. When you're met with opposition, distance yourself. Say, away with them. You want to know how to radiate the light of the gospel into the world? Don't withhold compassion. Lead with compassion. What does it look like? It begins with prayer and a lot of listening. It's like asking people for their stories and listening. Asking follow-up questions. Praying earnestly. Sharing your story. By God's grace, so then I'm glad that this is who we already are. This is who the Lord has been making us into ever since we were planted. And my prayer is that you continue to cultivate this heart among us. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say very briefly before I close. There's one other thing that we see in Jesus' words here that I want to point out. There's a deep confidence in Jesus here. There's a profound hope that Jesus has in these words. And it's, you see it in the tone of necessity. I must go this. I must go. You see this. My, the work will be done. In the world, there is a tendency to de default to a posture of cynicism. We go through our lives and we learn lessons of things not going the way that we want them to. And oftentimes, we learn lessons from those situations. And unfortunately, really, there's, there's two ways that disappointment leads. On the one hand, it can lead to cynicism. Well, I guess I just shouldn't hope good things. We meet people around us who are struggling with sin and we say, well, it's probably not gonna get any better. I mean, sorry, we don't usually say that out loud. 
but in our hearts we know it's probably not going to work. Or, by God's grace, walking through disappointment after disappointment, we watch as the Lord nevertheless miraculously preserves a spark of hope in us. Gosh, I haven't seen that. That person's had like 1,800 chances. But maybe this next one is the chance that they need. Maybe this next one is the one that God's going to use. The Apostle Peter, there's a common verse that is often quoted, always be prepared, Christians, to make a defense for the gospel, is how it's worded, but that's not what the words are. Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Christians ought not be cynics. We get to go into the world with compassion, not because everything's going to be terrible and it's all going to be bad and the least we can do is love one another. That's not the Christian posture. The Christian posture is not one of cynicism, it's one of hope. The reason I'm loving people, the reason I'm demonstrating compassion to this person is even though they've had a hundred chances, maybe the next one is the one that God's going to use because that's how God works. So Drew, you've probably been through a lot in your life. We've been through a lot in our life together, but trust that God will use it. He's in the business of using it. And may God turn us and send us into the world around with true compassion, trusting that God will use our love in as much as it's rooted in his love to truly change the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you that sometimes flickers and threatens to be snuffed. But just as you sent your son into the world as the light that gives life to men, even though the darkness sometimes looks like it's going to overtake the light, nevertheless, the light is never extinguished. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who preserves the light of hope, the light of love. In our hearts, in the world, Thank you that your plan, despite opposition, will come to pass. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your patience with us, the love that you demonstrate, that even in this word of judgment and of lament in the face of sin, we see so clearly your heart for us. That even when we're not willing, even though we are kicking, we come, sometimes come kicking and screaming, you nevertheless don't lose patience, but you are patient in your kindness, enduring all things, bearing all things, hoping all things. So thank you for that, Lord. Help us as a people. Turn our eyes to the people in our lives who we have said away with. Give us hearts of compassion, hearts of wisdom, so that we can bring both grace and truth into the relationships in which you place us. We want to be agents of reconciliation, Lord, and we know that we cannot do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom. We cannot do it our own way because our way doesn't work. So please lead us as we seek to follow you. Please help us to be helpful to one another and to our neighbors. And please give us hope, Lord, that even in the midst of opposition that we may face, even though it might bring us into situations where we are in danger, whether physically or otherwise, that we can have hope that you will use all things for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose.
use all things for good. That's your promise. And so we trust you. We ask you for sustaining, for sustenance in that hope. We ask you to give us eyes, your eyes, for the people around us. Cultivating us love uh, that points us, causes us to come to you uh, so that we might receive your love first. So thank you, Lord, for showing your love to us in Christ. Thank you for finishing that journey, Lord Jesus, to Jerusalem. And as we come to the communion table and remember your death for our sake, just give us grateful hearts that are sober-minded in the face of our sin and yet overjoyed at the mercy that you have shown us in the face of it. In Christ's name, amen.